Welcome to this week's episode of the HS Health Tech Podcast. My name is James, one of the founders of HS, and with me this week I have Zoe Blake, who is the CEO of Zenzone. So Zoe has a really interesting background. She has been involved in technology and leadership for over 25 years, been involved in lots of different technology businesses. And then she underwent um, a significant personal tragedy in her life, which gave her the motivation to really go towards health tech and find solutions for, for mental health issues. So she became CEO of Zenzone, uh, and Zoe then grew Zenzone into becoming the largest digital mental health platform in England. It's now available in over 100 NHS clinical commissioning groups. So for those that don't know, that basically means it's free um, for children and young people across way more than half the country making a massive impact to the nhs landscape the way we view digital health but most importantly to patients so on the podcast we talk about lots of different things we talk about that 25 year background in tech businesses we talk about her experience of mental ill health in her family and how she came towards health tech we talk about different topics like why you shouldn't judge a company by what they raise um, zoe touches on in the podcast about how zenzo first raise was was 15k uh, which gave them the chance to uh, get a developer um, and they grew from there they were very commercial early on and so we explore all of that we explore how so he's actually gone to scale zenzone through those different raises into what it is now um, and a few other things like how digital could be the answer for the huge demand of mental health services in the uk and globally um, and on that an interesting anecdote that uh, zoe brings up about uh, a company doing a 3D counsellor, which might sound like a gimmick, but so he rates it very highly indeed. So, as always, you can get in touch with us uh, via Twitter at HSVenture. You can ping us on Instagram at HS.Ventures. And if you want to get in touch with me, search James Somaru, so S-O-M-A-U-R-O-O, across LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, the lot, you name it, um, and get in touch any way you like. So, guys, enjoy the the podcast. Cool, so Zoe, welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing? Oh, I'm very well, thank you, James. Um, I'm looking forward to this as my first podcast. Oh, excellent. Where, whereabouts are you based, Zoe? Uh, well, we're actually a national service. Um, we've got a small office in Monument in London, and we're also, we actually originated from Manchester. And our workers are all over the place because most of them are home workers. Oh, very nice. Well, we'll go into all of that detail, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, so Zoe, for the benefit of our listeners, why don't you tell us your story? Okay, so um, my story to date, because there's obviously more to come, uh, is I joined Zenzone four years ago, uh, and I'm the chief executive at Zenzone. Um, my job there is to scale the business, um, what was a small entrepreneurial business, and take it into to its next growth phase and that's really where my background um, comes into play so I've spent the last ooh, 25 years in tech-led businesses um, I probably um, followed quite a traditional route started in telecoms where a lot of people in technology started I uh, moved from dot-com so I was in the dot-com um, bubble if you like at the end of the 90s um, moved into deep infrastructure and software large and small companies so I've really the, the continuous thread throughout those has been uh, using technology in a, a disrupt, disruptive way um, and growing those businesses um, so that's why I've um, come to Zenzone I think that's my professional sort of background personally um, I'm the mum of two teenagers. Um, I did a psychology degree, actually, which is really helpful now. Hasn't been um, necessarily something I've relied on more in my past roles. Um, and like many of the people listening to this, um, my family, um, we have lived through, we have lived experience of mental ill health. Uh, and that's become uh, really uh, something I draw upon um, for this role at Zenzone. Yeah, so Zoe, can you tell me a little bit more about the early stages of Zenzone um, and then at what point you came in as CEO and some of those early days when you came in? Absolutely. So um, we actually started our journey a, a long time ago. So 2001 uh, was the genesis of Zenzone. And really the principle there was how can, if technology is, if, sorry, if the internet is disrupting every other sector, how could it be disruptive within uh, talking therapies? And specifically, how could you use technology to reach people 
uh, who wouldn't walk through the therapist's door. Initially, the idea was very much to reach men because um, they were the, the lowest group, if you like, in terms of people walking through the therapist's door. Um, and still that is true today. But what happened very early on um, is by 2004, uh, we, we recognised that actually it was young people that were coming to the service more frequently. And so we, we pivoted the idea then and we became a young person service. So for the 15 years really, or for 14 years since the first genesis of the idea and, and then from service starting in 2004, up until 2015, uh, really we were breaking very new ground. We were absolutely the innovators in our space, convincing people that you can deliver mental health services online. It, it, it seems strange now because I think actually that argument has been won. Um, and really building the business brick by brick from the ground up entrepreneurially. In 2015, you know, which is when I came into the business, there was recognition that it, it, we kind of needed a, a big boost growth-wise. Um, and so we took investment at that point and I came in to lead the next phase. Now, Elaine Bowsfield, who was the originator of the idea and our founder, is very much part of our management team still. Uh, she focuses on the content on our platform. Um, but I came in, as I said, my background's on scaling organisations and that's really what we've been doing since then. And, and really since then, we've gone um, from being a small business um, with less than 50 employees to uh, achieving 40% growth year on year for the last three years. Um, and now to a point where our Cooth service, which is our service for young people, uh, is available free at the point of need as an NHS commission service to almost half of young people in this country. How much investment did you um, take in in 2015? Well, well I can say, take you even further back if you like and say the investment at the beginning, if you yeah, want to call it seed funding, was so small. Um, because fundamentally the idea was initially, um, Elaine was in a charity at the time and she, was, she said, why don't we do this as a charity? And they, the charity felt it was far too risky. And actually I think the bank felt it was far too risky too. So initially the whole company was set up on a 15,000 pound fund. Amazing. Um, very much brick by brick with one very willing developer uh, for a long time. And since then um, we took private, in, uh, private investment, if you like on our series A fund, um, which amounted to, I'd have to say, low million millions. Um, and that's really gone into our, our back end. We've rebuilt all our technology, uh, no longer one developer, now a team of product managers, developers, data analysts, as you'd expect. Uh, and really that investment has taken us to this point uh, where we are um, ready to um, expand further and even maybe go further afield than the UK. Oh, amazing. I mean, it's an advocate, you know, for just raise what you need. I mean, as you say, you know, 15k might sound like a low amount to people when they're thinking of seed funding. But at the end of the day, you can't judge a company on what they raise. It's a it's a silly metric to do so. And actually a 15k and one developer got you initial product market fit enough to show a massive uptick enough for all of that growth, which led to this series A, then absolutely fair enough. And you know what, you, not much of the company would have been given away for 15k. So actually, for the way that company's run, um, all the better for the founders and, and, and the exec team, I imagine. Um, and there's decisions you have to make. I mean, this not just from this organisation, but from others I've worked in. There's decisions you have to make that are very different if you if you don't raise a large amount of money. And one of them is to be very commercial from the get go. So one of the things about our model is that you know we we have been building the company with uh, CCGs. You know, we we actually work with individuals. So I said we we cover a, a large spread of the country. Um, that's actually 120 individual contracts. Uh, and so, you know, being a commercial organisation right from the beginning and thinking about what's the best fit for those who are buying the service was really essential because the investment was so small. Yeah, that's an interesting way of doing it as well, because obviously, as you say, with your model, and I, I was reading a lot about your website and your story and things, that that's, that did come through about um, obviously deciding to run it in a way to be profitable relatively quickly. I'm going to ask you a bit more about the product, and I know you've got the three different offerings and things, and we can go into detail about that for our audience. I'm sure they'd be very interested to see what you've built and the technology behind them. But the, before I do that, I just want to cover your personal decision and motivation to join Zenzone. And was there anything in your in your past and your history which led you towards mental health? Why was this the company that you wanted to scale? Because I imagine with your experience that there were lots and lots and lots of things you could have done. I mean, seeing 
everything from the you know the dot com boom and, and VPN, you know everything that that you've probably seen through telecoms. I imagine you could have gone and done a lot of different things. So why mental health and why health tech specifically? Yes. Um... Yeah, there is a specific reason and it, it's personal rather than uh, professional. The professional side of things means I've got the skill set, but the personal motivation um, relates to the fact that um, I, my mother was, um, she suffered from mental health illness. Uh, she went through periods of depression as I was growing up and um, ultimately whilst I was at university, she took her own life and that however much I may feel hasn't colored my life in, in, in everything, I've, every decision I've taken, um, it does, it shapes you, it makes you um, empathetic, it makes you understand the challenges that families go through. Um, and when this opportunity was there, it, it was absolutely the right thing at the right time of my life as well, because ultimately I, I have two teenagers, um, they do not have a grandmother because of that. And um, the fit with Cooth and with Zenzone was absolutely where I felt it was right for me to be. Wow. And I imagine it must be incredible now to see the impact that, that you're making in hopefully, and I'm sure you, you probably see this a lot closer than I do, um, to actually preventing that happening in others. It must be in- incredible to, to be part of that journey with the company. Absolutely. Um, you know, we're a, a, sing, a digital platform for young people and adults. Um, I think you know, we, we'll talk about other you know, evaluation outputs, but the biggest um, difference for me working in this area compared to any other I've worked in is, of course, we look at all our, our financial measures. We have our KPIs across the business. The thing that makes a real difference um, is that at the end of each month, I will look at um, some, just some of the impact that we've had on our service users and the feedback we get and um, it's very emotional to see the difference you can make on some, in someone's life there's a lot of feedback from young people particularly about being heard and how important that is about being empowered and feeling in control of what they do uh, and these are things you can't measure in any other way but by actually looking at the human impact of what you do so yes it, it, it is very important it's a choice that I made and I feel very lucky to be part of it's it's an interesting subject for me because i used to work in in policy in healthcare, so um, a couple of the arms length bodies to the department of health and i used to work with people there that would often get i don't know how you describe it i guess jaded or disconcerted with i guess the daily grind and and policy can be dull it can be um, lots of different things that aren't the, that, that you don't experience at the coalface. And I often used to think, I wish that some of these people could actually go to the ground floor and actually see some of the impact that a lot of this, what must seem like really dull work at times, is actually creating a genuine impact on the ground floor. And I just wish that that so many of those people could actually see that sometimes. And um, I, you know, I was lucky as a clinician that I and I worked my way the opposite way to, to policy because I, I thought at the time, you know, that that was. Um, something something I needed to learn in order to go and innovate further in what I do now. So, um, I, you know, I migrated upwards so I could always have an appreciation of of that of that impact and stuff. So, yeah, sorry, I was going to say I think it's really important. And what's wonderful, I mean, in the example you've just given, you you probably have to go physically somewhere, and then it would be at the moment in time that you were you were viewing it. So, one of the you know the great things about digital anything is the the immediacy of it and the fact that you can um, you can you know access people people can give you access to their thoughts very quickly. So you know I've had some amazing unsolicited videos which you just cannot feel. Um, anything but pleasure from so I had a a group of um, young men send me uh, a football chant which was you know we love you coos we do and it just (laughs) absolutely brilliant I mean you know that alone gets you out of it if you come out of a a spreadsheet meeting or or something which hasn't you know quite gone to plan and you open your computer and you say look we've (laughs) done something that actually you know to get boy teenage boys to actually do something and write and say it's worthwhile me doing this it's just amazing and and we have so many examples of that and also you know possibly less uh less joyful things but things like you know i messages which are really difficult to read but you know about self-harm i've we have uh regularly i see messages that say i didn't self-harm this week and, and because of what the support that you've given me because i feel more worthwhile or because i've struggled against something in the past and i'm feeling i can i'm strong enough not to and that that just it 
outweighs any shareholder value, any growth metric or anything else that you can measure a business by, an organization by. Um, and so, you know, we're very lucky to get that immediate feedback. Amazing. So on that note, then let's talk about the, the different products you've got. So, so walk me through the kind of user journeys for yep. um, the different offerings that you've got. So to give our audience kind of a flavor for what it feels like to, to go through one of your Zenzone products. So we, ultimately, we have one single service, which is a, a digital mental health platform. And, I, and, and we have different front ends for that. So different ways to get into our service and, I, you know, just to sort of bring it to life, different doors to walk through, if you like. Um, the, the main offer we have is Couth, as I've mentioned. Um, that is for 11 to 25 year olds. Uh, is commissioned, as I said, so it's free at the point of need. Um, our adult service or the service above the 25 and we're very grateful to the long-term plan for um, sort of extending the age range to 25 so the transition services are no longer a sort of um, the middle ground if you like um, so over 25s we use the uh, brand quell uh, and we also have um, used um, native app format these are both platform these are web-based apps couth and quell and we've used a native app format called minds for life um, really that those brands are as i say access to a single digital mental health platform. Once you enter that platform, um, you are entering an end-to-end -end mental health service. And I think that's a big difference between what we offer in a digital service compared to tools, for example. And that's very important because um, part of our ethos is the ability to step up and step down within our own service. And if I just sort of talk about Couth specifically, um, one of the measures that we're able to use to demonstrate the value of what we're giving back to uh, the NHS, if you like, is helping hit access targets. So um, we, measure, we hold young people and 92% of the young people who, who uh, access Couth stay within Couth, are held within our own service. Only 8% do we refer out either because they make a choice to be referred out or because of the severity of need so we are actually increasing nhs access when you i said a step up and step down that is a, a user-driven journey so i will describe it in steps but ultimately somebody can choose wherever they want to start um, you will we have a rich psychoeducational uh, library content um, I around 70,000 articles and pieces written um, of those 60% are co-produced. It's a big part of our ethos is co-production of content. We have a community uh, which you can access via static forums, but also live thematic forums. So um, we, for example, run uh, forums around, around Freshers Week, fitting in for our acoustic student um, offer. Um, it could be around um, specific mental health awareness uh, days or timeframes, um, or it can be around presenting issues as we see, um, you know, regular presenting issues around anxiety, uh, exam stress at this time of year, just finishing off now. Um, and then the key thing is we also have access to professional workers. It's all self-referral, so there's no barriers. You don't have to wait for uh, an adult, in the case of Acoust, to take you to the service. Um, you can access the mental health workers either by messaging, so that's uh, asynchronous, Lots of young people like to spend time thinking about how they what they're going to write, or you can go into a, a chat session, which is a time bound session with a professional worker and they can be drop in or scheduled and you can work with a pool of workers or with a named worker, um, which means you can do a structured piece of therapeutic intervention. Our workers are a mix, counsellors, uh, all our counsellors, all our um, chats or our uh, time-based sessions are uh, delivered by counsellors. They are accredited counsellors. They have um, all working towards accreditation. They've all got a minimum of three years face-to-face counselling experience. Um, and they work within a clinical framework um, of our, in our own service. So we have clinical supervision both internally and externally. Both Couth and Quell platforms are BACP accredited platforms, which I believe is really unique for. Which it shows that we, we take the guidelines of best practice for counselling very seriously as a service. Um, and I think for young people, the feedback, there are many differences with um, digital counselling compared to face-to-face -face counselling. Um, the accessibility, so you can work with a worker up till 10 o'clock at night, um, which is, is, is different. 70% uh, of our young people access a service of out of traditional hours. And you, you don't have to wait. Um, you don't have to give your name. We are an, an anonymous at the point of entry service. 
if there is a safeguarding issue, we will often um, ask for the young person's name and many consent to give us that. But we will work with the young person anonymously as well. Um, and I think that really um, what the feedback we get is uh, around 95% consistent um, friends and family recommendation, young people would recommend it to a friend. And the same is true of adults. So it's the same service, different content. Um, we have uh, content that is themed around particular cohorts. Uh, we support those living through domestic abuse, uh, caring for carers. We're actually running a program uh, supporting teachers who are increasingly asked to support young people uh, with mental health issues in the school. Uh, interestingly, we are moving toward in um, both Cooth and also in, in our Cooth in our Quell platform, working with young uh, people in the workplace and more and more working with corporates to look at supporting uh, their employees in the workplace. Very cool. I, there's a lot of questions that I've got, obviously. Um, <laughs> and one, there's a couple of things that have caught my attention there. I think what interests me particularly is that it's self-referral. I think that's a really interesting piece and, and that's in the context of it being within the NHS as well. So it's not as if, if I've understood this correctly, that this is a service which people are signposted to after they go to their GP or after they go some, to something else. Because I guess the the beauty of this is that it does allow people a front door to mental health services, addressing some of the points which you've which you've named, which are things like it being anonymous or people don't have to wait or they can do it out of hours. So all of those things are only valid plus points if it is self-referral, which I think is a, is, is a great step. And I think the way that you've managed to integrate that within the public health system here in the UK and, you know, allow that to, to have all the knock-on benefits of meeting targets and all those different things. I think, I think that's an incredible thing to have done. And I think it's a very difficult thing to have done as well. And, and perhaps, you know, being around for, for quite a long time has, has allowed you to kind of permeate and really find a product market fit because you've, you've integrated yourself within a clinical pathway and within a system so well that you've been a, uh, allowed to scale into over a hundred different local public health systems, which, which is incredible. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the first thing I should say is that in the early days and, and it even, you know, even not that early days, we, we really relied on very innovative commissioners. Um, those that were willing to try something new to innovate in their areas. Um, we have always come from a clinical background and I think that really helps where we've always felt that whilst we, you know, we are absolute advocates of a digital delivery, uh, we also believe that it should be part of a whole system approach. And I think that that's really key um, particularly, you know, with vulnerable young adults, you know, we've got to be able to um, risk assess, to deliver safeguarding across both the online and offline world. So, so that it's, it's part of our DNA, if you like, but we have relied on, especially those early days, some, some really brave commissioners. Um, we've also had some help in the sort of at the end of uh, 2015, which is when we started to get some, some real momentum. There was some policy help as well. You know, the, the um, transformation plans really um, added to the commissioner's uh, ability to commission a digital service. Uh, and that really um, helped us expand at that time. Um, I think that we being integrated into a whole system approach allows us to go into schools as well, which means we get, um, you know, really great advocates within the teachers. You know, it's, 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 we're pushing back to teachers to deliver um, a frontline, if you're very sort of awareness gener uh, in mental health, having a service that they don't have to um, create a barrier to, there's no referral or, re or threshold or requirement before a young person can access it is really important. And we've always been an early intervention service. We really, um, we really believe in preventative uh, mental health support and emotional support and well-being. Um, but equally, we believe in early response, you know, where we do deal with mild and moderate, but we also deal with complex needs, but we are there quickly. And that can really help to not escalate or to stop issues escalating, both for the human impact, but also for the NHS. You know, it means that there, we can help uh, reduce the demand on some of the CAM services. 
And there's a good lesson for entrepreneurs here. I mean, it's a pretty basic lesson, but one which is expressed really interestingly in, in what you do, which is understand your customer. And I think the way that you've expressed that is that you've, in, in the way that you describe your team and your approach, you've got a really deep understanding of the clinical side but as you say, also the policy side. And it strikes me that you speak in the language of your customer so well. And in this case, it's probably referencing policy documents or referencing policy changes and referencing the the clinical elements and understanding the levers to pull because you understand your customer so well. Um, I think that's a really interesting expression of of how important it is to, to really know and understand your customers. And within that, you found the innovative ones, which which again is an extremely important thing to do you know finding the risk takers that are willing to do something new that are willing to do something different and i imagine in those early days that was the one of the most important but also probably one of the hardest things to do because you're looking for needles in haystacks but again it's it, you know it's all about building relationships with those people and getting them to understand and trust you tr- and, and therefore ergo hopefully they will trust your technology and trust your ability to change things in a in a safe but innovative way Absolutely. And I think, so, you know, we've, we've got a, a, lots of different people in the organization. Um, for anybody who, you know, this is, this is not rocket science, but you, you need to mirror your, your customer. You need to make sure that you're speaking the same language. You need to understand their challenges. So we, you know, the people that we put in market to talk to our commissioners, some of them have been commissioners themselves, you know, the poacher turned game teacher or the other way around. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's really important also to understand their challenges, you know, we talk about access. Well, that's a key target for our commissioners. They, they have targets they have to meet, um, knowing how we can contribute to those. We spent the last um, two years working with the NHS to make sure that the, the, the young people that come onto our site are counted within access targets because that is how the commissioners are measured and it's important for us to understand that. Equally, you know, within the public sector particularly, we need to understand how budgets work and and what part of a budget um what targets we would need to achieve to to be able to unlock that budget for the commissioner so so we work in quite a consultative way um in the sales process if you like Mm. and again it just strikes me that through all of that you've developed some really powerful value propositions for everybody in the chain because there's going to be users there's going to be buyers there's going to be all the people intermediary and, and around all of those different things but a deep understanding of that entire system a deep understanding of your com- of the commissioners of the clinical side the policy side the the relationships with your users you know all of that seems to be what you've developed so strongly which has allowed you um, to get where you are now, which is incredible. I mean, can you, I guess, throw some light on that then and, and the value propositions and, and talk me through your business model and, and how that's all working together? Yeah, I mean, you know, I would, would say that, you know, we're talking a lot about Cooth and, and one of the challenges we have moving forward is to do is to replicate that understanding of the customer and their drivers in other areas. So in corporate businesses, particularly HR directors, um, about their challenges, even to uh, vice chancellors within uh, universities about their challenges as well. So that, that's, that's we, we haven't finished that journey, if you like. We, we, every time we want to go to a new market, we need to understand the customer um, challenges. In terms of our proposition, so we've, we've, as I said, it's a digital platform with a, a number of uh, journeys that young people and, and adults can take across it to um, achieve recovery or, or better mental health outcomes. Um, we price it to be very competitive against tra- traditional services because ultimately, whilst it's great that we increase access and it's a, a barrier-free way, we also need to be a cost-effective alternative for um, traditional services. So um, we are not a telehealth model, and I think that's a, a, probably a, a good distinction I could make. Um, and the re- you know, we do offer a one-to-one service in our um, counselling, in our instant chat, but across the platform, we offer a multiple models. So a one-to-one, a one-to-few, and also a one-to-many. And that is how we can make sure, assuming um, that the young person chooses different routes within there, we can make sure that the cost of a, a young person's mental health journey through our platform is lower than a traditional service and can be as long as they like so if if we interact with a young person through the psychoeducational material um, then we can hold them there safely and in through a value 
but without actually having to put them into a one-to-one telehealth model. So is, is it being digital an advantage then when you're thinking of these different ways to deliver the service? So the one-to-few and the one-to-many, my assumption is that those are enabled by digital to be a lot easier than they would be in face-to-face. And I think the, the reason I'm asking this question is that we've had a few people on this podcast that have talked about um, scaling mental health services and technology being a really good way to do that. And I think it, I think there are people exploring lots of different ways in order to make that a genuine reality, because at the end of the day, the ideal thing to do would be to scale that one-to-one human interaction as close to a human interaction as possible, if not to actually, you know, genuinely scale the human interaction itself. So do you, do you find that the, the digital nature and, and the digitization, I guess, of, of mental health service provision, um, do you feel like it's it's being enabled in, in these different sort of one-to-many, one-to-few models? So I think the key thing for us is um, you, the, the digital, digital, anything delivered digitally means that obviously the barriers to um, to location are broken down. So one of the things that, that digital services, all digital services do is allow a worker to be anywhere potentially in the world, but in, in our case, in the country to deliver service to somebody else anywhere in the country. And, and that's really important, but it doesn't really shift the needle enough, you know, whilst, and, and particularly in a, on a global scale. So in the UK, we do have um, a, a good number of qualified mental health workers. In other countries, they don't. Um, and the time it takes to bring people up to, to train people is not something that we, we can wait for, if you like, and, and or even able possibly to do. So I think the digital delivery of a one-to-one uh, div- uh, mental health service does have some benefits, but it doesn't shift the needle enough. If you go to the other end of the scale, which is a, a mental health service that doesn't have a human part of it at all and I know that there are models that are looking at that in fact I was um, actually part of um, a demonstration this this week where I saw a 3D counsellor and and you know that's really exciting because uh, in areas where you just don't have the the skills sell the workers then you know creating a virtual version of the best counsellor and delivering that to multiple people is very exciting where we are is currently is is to have that model where you you can go to one to many um, and the one to few but with a clinical oversight and I think that shifts the needle an awful lot so it means that last year where we saw a hundred thousand young people and 30 delivered 39,000 counseling sessions to do that in a physical environment would be tricky enough to then say well actually and on top of all those people um, who've had the counseling sessions we're going to have an open door to people who just want to investigate or start their journey at um, normalizing their experiences by talking to other people in a very in a safe environment and one of the things I should say and haven't is that our platforms are all pre-moderated so they are a very safe place for young people and vulnerable adults to be and to share their commentary Um, and I think that that it's only with digital that you can create that scale for the early intervention that you need for early intervention to create the preventative approach that we really want to do, which is ultimately if 75% of me- uh, mental health issues in adults are apparent in children, in, well, by the way, by the time you're 17, if we can get there very early, then actually we can stem the tide of mental health illness in adults and only digital can reach the people at the scale we want to. Mm, which that makes a lot that makes a lot more sense um can you just explain to me just an example of some of some of the content because i know you said the content's different for your different offerings for children adolescents and adults and things so what what is the content itself specifically so i mean i, I kind of make the distinction between if you like editorial content and interactive or immersive content yeah um so editorial content will be uh, and you can you know, it could be static with photographs or, or video um blogs um sorry blogs and blogs um and ultimately they they are mainly around personal lived experience we've got a lot of of young people and adults contributing to that they can be psychoeducational um growing knowledge around a particular um experience so um they we do uh, we've just um done a whole raft of content around um 
had the sort of statistics around uh, living with domestic in the uh, situation of domestic abuse. Um, we and we'll cover things right from well-being with young people up to very significant issues um, like self-harm. Um, and we'll also do interactive editorial. So um, we started to have some wonderful work around poetry, using poetry as therapy as well, with young people pu publishing their poems and us um, engaging with uh, more people through poetry and bibliotherapy as well. So sharing uh, stories, um, fictional stories, but able to investigate some of the therapeutic need within a, a fictional environment. So that, that is your editorial content. Um, we make it specific to the age group. Um, so it could be, as I said, um, the presenting issue in young people. It could be around students. It could be around adults who are um, feeling isolated because they are uh, caring for carers. It can be for young carers as well. Immersive content would be something, a program that you would go through. Um, so we have built programs around recovering from grief, anxiety, uh, depression. And these are a program where you were, you actually, it's a series of um, steps, if you like. They're not regulated to five steps, but you can go to the number of steps where you are building your understanding, you are normalizing some of your experiences. And these are all developed by clinicians, um, both in our own organization and with external experts and by going through that program uh, you get to a, a, an outcome where you have actually achieved something positive and you feel that you can cope better through going through that program. We're also bringing on um, best practice uh, licensed content onto the platform again something for the future but that's with those with an evidence base that actually you, once you complete the program you actually come out with a, um, an, an outcome that is evidenced. Okay, cool. So you must have quite a lot of data then um, at, th at the back end of all of this, you, you know, the amount of people that, you know, 100,000 people that have been through um, these different programs and things, and obviously their, their responses and things I assume you record and, and all that stuff. How much data do you have? Is it valuable? Are you planning on doing anything with it? Is there, you know, benefits to be gained from, from doing some fun stuff with that? Yes. So I th uh, just uh, you, we had 100,000 last year. So it's much bigger than that, the data set. Mm. And, it, and it's a long time. So we've been collecting data from the beginning of the service. Oh, yeah, um, years. Yeah, absolutely. And the data points are multiple. So, yes, we have real life transcripts of um, chat sessions. So a therapeutic intervention. Um, they are linked and the data I'm told by my CTO because he, he, he when he came in, he had a good look to make sure is, is very structured um, and clean. So um, our transcripts are linked to case notes. Our case notes and transcripts are linked to presenting issues. Uh, and that allows us to then start looking at how we can start automating some of the um, decisioning behind the platform so that we can create individualized journeys. And also we can do some of the things that you use humans for currently. We can use technology to sit alongside those humans to um, direct them to the right place. So an example of that for example, would be um, safeguarding tree and say automated AI safeguarding. So we are able to recognize even things like hesitations in the, um, the transcript or capitalization or language used and how that is associated with a risk. Uh, and we can start building that automation into our system so that we can red flag automatically rather than it being currently a human intervention. Um, and that really helps people to direct their services to the right person as quickly as possible. The other thing we have is mood journals. Um, so uh, um, tracking people's mood against uh, diary entries as well. Um, all of this is aggregated and anonymous. Um, so we wouldn't share this data with anyone else. I should say very carefully. Uh, we use our own data to deliver better service. Um, I think that's a really important point of, uh, of the way we would intend to move forward with our data usage. Yeah, because I was going to say, so the tech behind this, um, you know, when we were talking originally about, you know, the, the platform and things, it seemed relatively straightforward. But actually now when you when you think about how to use the data with natural language processing and obviously AI, AI machine learning and, and all that, you know, stuff applied to, to those millions of data points that you must have mm -hmm. it starts to get very interesting from a technology point of view and i imagine your cto must be quite excited and, and building some pretty cool stuff in the background yeah so i think that the really the important thing here is that 
a lot of models in healthcare are built based upon conjecture, um, particularly in mental health care. So um, it may be that um, we say we look for something uh, in a forum where people say that they are low mood. Um, but he, and, and so that we look at that forum. Now, it does, it, the assumption then is that everybody in that forum is experiencing low mood, whereas we have um, all of this data with a clinical assessment and presenting issue attached to it. There is no conjecture. And, and that is what my, our CTO is very excited about. Um, we've already built some natural language tools um, so that we can identify um, therapeutic messaging against non-therapeutic messaging. Um, that's part of what we do again going back to what our commissioners need because part of our um, measuring access targets for them is contributing to the mental health service data set and within that it needs to be a therapeutic message that we count so that's really helped us because and, and we know we can do it really well you know we've been testing it um, with clinicians sitting alongside our technology uh, and it works very, very well um, above the, the the test that we set it um, and yes moving forward we will be rolling out more of those tools um, to help really to help ensure that service users get early intervention before maybe they even ask for it that's really cool and I just want to go back to something that you mentioned previously as well with, with the business model, because it's just popped into my head with, with um, all the, the potential that, that obviously this unlocks is that I, I assume at the moment, the, the NHS is paying you per patient or on some sort of deal that way. But you mentioned a couple of new customers, you mentioned universities, I think you mentioned employers. So you're obviously looking at, at attacking this from multiple fronts, because again, this self-referral front door, I think is, is such a good way of capturing um, the, the people into your system that, that really need your product, basically. So, yeah, are you actively looking to to get those customers on board right now, or is that something for the near future? What's the plan? Uh, yeah, so we're already live in two universities and universities at, and the um, CCGs are similar in the pricing model in that we, we look at the population size and the propensity to use because they need a very predictable um, annual um, budget, if you like. Yeah, that makes um, sense. Within corporates, we're, we're about to launch, also about to announce um, a corporate client um, and another national client. Um, and the pricing model is slightly different. Um, we will start, you know, the, we'll look at more uh, different pricing models depending on the audience. So there may be a model where actually there's a low um, or no entry cost and then uh, as the, as the care step ups i talk about the step up and step down then actually you, you hit gates or tokens if you like um of which the corporate has already um allocated a budget towards so that so you're sort of putting a, a cost on the the level of interaction that is across the platform yeah that makes sense very cool so what about the space in general then i mean you mentioned something a second ago which i think a few of our audience will be interested in a 3d counselor um and there's obviously you know gimmick or not there must be a few things happening at the kind of the frontier edge of the technology in this space i mean do you, do you see much of that do you interact with much of that stuff do you keep an eye on it to to integrate alongside it or with it you know what's your view of the space for, from that perspective so it's very busy. I'd love to say that we know everything that's going on. Um, <laughs> but I don't think we could possibly. Um, I think there's a couple of, I mean, I talked about the 3D counselor and it's amazing, by the way. Um, I think that um, they've got, and that's actually a bit of a trend I'm seeing, which is um, bringing people in from um, graphic background gamification. We're, we're actually working with a gaming agency at the moment to have a look at how you can bring in. And that's just about making sure that the user experience is absolutely flawless. Um, so gamification is definitely something you'll see. Um, animators, you know, that 3D counselor needed animators and renderers. So it, it, you've got to make it to um, a high standard, it's a, a gaming standard, if you like. Um, I suppose that there's a lot of discussion. There has been an awful lot of discussion about chatbots um counselors you know, replacing counselors um we actually did we, we've got a chatbot we've we've used it ourselves um interestingly we we used it for um uh, in adults only to test um adherence to you know, completion of assessment tools so a core 10 questionnaire and actually people are really happy to use a bot for that so we had a i think it was a 97 percent completion rate of people going through taking the answering the questions with a bot um, so i think there's a there's definitely a role for bots but you you'll, you'll know and have, i'm sure everyone else has heard or read about some of the challenges you know if, again that goes back to that idea of conjecture so um 
are they safeguarding properly? Uh, if somebody writes something on a bot, is, are the, the right mechanisms in place to pick that up? If it's not written in a certain way or if it's not the right language, um, can a bot really safeguard you uh, through to somebody else? So, so we do see it, absolutely see a role for them. I think the question is to how much do they re replace um, clinical psychologists and counselors is another question. Um, but we have to also, you know, be cognizant of the fact that in some parts of the world there isn't an alternative. So the idea of using technology um, is really driven by the fact that there's not a workforce there to, to enable anyway. I, I really I really like your position in the space here with all of the new technologies coming through because I imagine if I sort of put myself in your shoes as CEO of, of the platform which already has this incredible reach to you know across the, the 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 public health system here in the UK but now also you know bringing on private sector organizations and, and you know universities and corporates employers things like that it strikes me that whatever technologies seem to be adding a heck of a lot of value as the platform already with that reach you can just do the partnerships or you can even you know invest acquire you know you you can really sit with because you're the gateway into all of the all of the users and the customers seemingly it seems like you're in a really interesting spot to start thinking about doing those sorts of things and I think, you know, that's what we're really interested about the platform model, actually. I mean, I think yeah. that, you know, I talked about it from a user journey, which is that, you know, that, that ability to stay there and, and get different levels of counselling. I mean, you think the difference of, a, of that compared to a standalone service, if you've got a really great best in class self-help tool, for example, it, you know, that might work for you for a, a long time because mental health is a lifetime um, journey. So, you know, that might be a really great tool, but at a time when it maybe it fails you, you then have to go and find another tool or, or, or access a program or go and look for a counsellor. And if we're collecting data across the whole platform, then actually before you reach a point where that might be, not be doing what it needs to do, yeah. we can start directing you through a, an individualized journey, which, which other someone like you has been on before and reached a better place. And you don't have to leave the platform. And so we, 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 are, we, have, we do build stuff. You know, it's important for us to, um, to build our own tech and to build our own clinical programs. And we're currently, um, our clinical director um, is building a program for uh, early intervention in eating disorders. But equally, we are looking at best in class tools and programs and how they could go into our platform and we can power them from the data that we have about, again, that individualized user journey. Mm. Something I, did, I think might be useful to pick up, though, and I haven't spoken a lot about, but it is the community side of our platform, because I think that's, that's really important to, to make a distinction about how we do that as well. Because one of the things that we're doing now is um, putting our peers through um, training. Um, actually levels of training and when we've got this accredited um, to uh, open college networks at one level but we're, we're going to go up further and so that the value once you go through that training is something you can as a young person you know put on your cv but then that allows us to have confidence in the skills that that person has to start working um, to deliver support to each other and then putting that within a clinical framework rather than it being, um, if you like, you know, just a social media environment where people are willing to share. We're actually there to not only ensure that the support given is correct, but also ensure that the person giving the support is has a reflective space and is well held. And, and that's very much part of what we do is, is holding that community safe within that platform as well, and allowing those people sometimes to access the services themselves, because, you know, some those with lived experience also may benefit from some of the programs at different times mm. i feel like i've got a really good understanding of this now i i yeah I, i'm really excited about your position in the space i love that you you can now just now that you have the customer base and now that you have um so you know so many people going through it and and receive you know receiving so much help from from everything you've got on offer you you can really be focused on the value so you don't need to bring on products or features or you know even acquisitions if you want to go down that route you don't need to do that for any gimmicky way you don't need to do that for show you don't need to do that because it is like the the hottest thing in town and, and you're looking to acquire customers through it because it just doesn't work like that in your world right now because you've already got the customer base and you can literally just be sat there focused on what is bringing the most value and we can bring that on board we can build it we can partner you know we can you know you can do all of those different things and i think yeah it, it's just a really it's a really good place to be i think where, where you are and it must feel um 
it must feel quite satisfying to to know to know you're in that position. Yeah, it does. It's also challenging. I think you know the the great staying thing, there is challenging. I imagine staying there is challenging. Um, you know, making sure that because the, the value proposition actually in this instance is also the evidence. You know, making sure that we can evidence outcomes, um, keeping ahead of uh, what it is that each of our um, different customer groups needs, but always with keeping the user in mind, um, the service user. You know, it is the person who comes on who is looking for support, who may not have gone anywhere else for support. And, and you know, you'll know this measure, um, a third of people who do take their own lives um, have not interacted with any mental health service. And I, you know, I know that my mother was one of those people, you know, she had not gone to any kind of support. Um, so, you know, being there and being able to hopefully prevent that kind of thing happening to other people it is is a wonderful place to be um it doesn't mean it's not without these challenges i you know we are we are always looking to innovate um and technology moves on very quickly so you know there are challenges ahead of us but i think that the we're really confident about the, the positioning of being a digital mental health platform and what that gives as value both to our service users but also to those who pay for the service yeah i think it was i think it was spider-man that said that with great power comes great responsibility but it's absolutely true i think the position that you're in is is fabulous and the amount of people that you can help is is equally fabulous but as you say as you've alluded to you know the responsibility of being there the responsibility that you have to those to those patients not only to deliver what you've promised to deliver but then as you say also to keep innovating um it must get you out of bed every morning it does, and and I love a Marvel film, so I'm quite happy to draw a parallel <laughs> with Spider-Man. So that's good for me. Amazing. So this has been a fantastic podcast. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I feel like I've learned um, a great deal. Um, I mean, the way that we end these podcasts is uh, so we hand back over to you to kind of summarise a little bit about yourself, a little bit about Zenzone, and then if you've got any asks of our audience or any advice for any entrepreneurs listening, anything along those lines, then feel free to let us know hi i'm, I'm zoe blake i'm the uh, ceo of zenzone and zenzone is a digital mental health platform providing therapeutic support for uh, young people and adults across the country if you want to find out more about our business then please pop along to uh, www.zenzone.com and you can uh, see some of the great work that we've been doing for anyone entering this space i would say it's busy it's a busy mental health, digital mental health um, is having its day. It's great. It's really exciting space to be. Um, but within that, I would say that the responsibility to keep people safe and to think about the clinical outcomes is, is heavy and should always be considered.